I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Today, we're going to talk about how we as Christians should assess the world around us and then interact with the world around us. It's important that we know what values and beliefs are impacting the age in which we live, and we'll talk about one significant way that we can follow Scripture's emphasis upon being set apart from the world and being set apart to God. But first, Christians have really always wrestled with how they should respond to cultures around them. On the one hand, we recognize the goodness of God's creation. We acknowledge his common grace upon all people. But on the other hand, we recognize that people are sinful, that the world is hostile to God, that it's hostile to Christ as he himself predicted it would be, and therefore the world is hostile to Christians. So what are we to do then? Well, there have been traditionally three basic answers to the question of how we should relate as Christians and and even more specifically as churches to the culture of the unbelieving world around us. The first answer historically was that Christians should completely separate themselves from the unbelieving world. We should avoid doing whatever unbelievers do simply because they are unbelievers and we don't want to be like unbelievers. Uh, We should automatically and in every case be different than unbelievers are. And of course, this view highlights the antithesis that exists between good and evil in our world, which is a biblical emphasis. And this view insists that since good should never mix with evil, therefore Christians should have no similarity with unbelievers whatsoever. And churches in particular should be completely separated from secular governments, secular culture. Christians should avoid active participation in secular governments, for example. And and this view characterized uh, many Anabaptists in the 16th century and their descendants, uh, including Mennonites and uh, probably the most well-known group that would still ascribe to this sort of position today would be the Amish. The opposite answer to this question was that Christians and their churches should be active in the world. We should be seeking to transform the world, transform culture with the gospel. Christ is Lord of all, they would argue, and so it is the mission of churches to assert that lordship in all realms of life. Churches as collective groups and individual Christians should be active in governmental affairs and cultural endeavors, in feeding the poor and pursuing social justice and in doing good works for the purpose of redeeming and transforming culture for Christ. That view is built off of the assumption that God's purpose in the world is to redeem all things. And so the church should be active even now in pursuing that sort of redemption. This view highlights the doctrine of common grace. And it insists that nothing in culture is inherently sinful or beyond Christian use. This view is often called transformationalism, uh, sometimes called neo-Calvinism or neo-Kyperianism after Abraham Kuyper. Uh, And this, this characterizes many Reformed groups who emphasize the transformation of culture through the work of individual Christians and specifically through the work of churches. But there has been historically also what I would consider a mediating position. And this mediating position argues that Christians are members of two kingdoms. As Christians, we are first and foremost members of the kingdom of God. But as humans, 
We are members of the kingdom of this world. And so based on that understanding, as Christians and collectively as churches, we should be active in gospel pursuits, in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and in making disciples, teaching believers to observe everything that Christ has commanded. But as humans, as members of the kingdom of this world, we should also, as individual Christians specifically, be active in society pursuing the good of our fellow man in whatever vocation we find ourselves. This view also makes, I think, another important distinction. These two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, kingdom used here metaphorically, each of these two kingdoms have their own governments. The kingdom of God is, in this age, governed by the church and regulated by scripture. But the kingdom of this world is governed by human governments that God himself has ordained and regulated by what is sometimes called natural law, the way that God has created the world to work and the principles by which the world operates. These separate governments don't have authority over the other kingdom. In other words, civil governments have no authority over spiritual matters. And likewise, churches should not be involved in temporal matters. Churches are active in proclaiming the gospel and discipling converts who will then go out into the world and work for the good of society. Well, in a moment, I want to recommend a book that highlights this very kind of two-kingdom theology. But first, I want to introduce you to a hymn that perhaps you don't know. It's, as hymns go, a relatively new hymn Uh, both text and tune, written in 2001. And it is a hymn by Scottish pastor Eric Alexander titled, Lord, We Bow Before Your Glory. It's a Christological hymn focusing on the glory and beauty of Christ, on Christ's saving work, and then a prayer that we might know Christ better as we hear him speak to us in his holy word. The first stanza reads, Lord, we bow before your glory, manifested in your Son. Radiant with your perfect beauty, he is heaven's beloved one. Saving grace has given us vision, opened eyes that once were blind. He on whom we brought derision now delights our heart and mind. Beautiful text. Uh, The tune has been composed by Paul Jones, a wonderful tune that reflects the beauty and sobriety yet restful praise of Christ in the text. I love the last stanza and the prayer that it expresses. Oh, that we might know you better, Jesus Christ, our living Lord. Let our love grow daily greater as we hear your holy word. There you have revealed your glory. There we marvel at your grace. Feed our souls and make us like you till we see you face to face. I often use this hymn as a hymn of response to the gospel and praise of Christ for what he's done, uh, but also fittingly transitioning into hearing the reading and preaching of God's word. I want to play just the first stanza for you so you can hear the tune, a wonderful tune that I think reflects well the text.
So this is Lord, We Bow Before Your Glory by Scottish pastor Eric Alexander, tuned by Paul Jones. I'd encourage you to visit classichymns.org and scroll down to this hymn, Lord, We Bow Before Your Glory. You can download PDFs of this, and it's also available in our hymnal, Hymns to the Living God. Well, we talked about how historically Christians have responded to interacting in the world. It's very important as Christians that we understand the world in which we live. Christ himself promised that the world would hate us. And yet at the same time, there is good in the world because of God's common grace and because all people are made in the image of God. But it's important that we are able to assess what is going on around us. What are the dominant values and beliefs that have impacted and influenced the culture around us? For many, many years in the West, of course, there was a close relationship between the church and the state such that Christian values penetrated cultural aspects to a, to a large degree. But many factors, of course, eventually led to the end of that close church-state union, what we might call Christendom in the West. And several of these, ironically, came as a result of the dominance of Christianity. The 15th century Renaissance, for example, which emphasized classical learning rooted in the original sources, to the books, was the cry. Uh, That movement flourished among Christian theologians. But it also began to progressively dismantle the unilateral control of the church, which, of course, by that time had developed many theological problems. The quick impact of the Reformation in the 16th century also could have happened only because Christianity was such a central part of society. Many people in the West already believed in the reality of God and the Bible as his divine revelation. And once the scriptures were translated into the language of the people, those underlying assumptions provided really fertile ground for Protestant theologians to argue their reforms. And in a similar way, even advancements in science in the 16th and 17th centuries, those arose out of Christian curiosity to truly know God and what he has made. And each of these movements, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Scientific Revolution, were for the most part thoroughly Christian at their core. And yet, each of these movements also began to contribute to the weakening of Christianity's influence in broader society. For example, the 17th century scientific revolution inevitably led to skepticism toward anything that could not be proven through human reason, including the supernatural. Philosophers such as René Descartes, John Locke, Voltaire, provided a philosophical framework for the natural sciences rooted in independent human reason, separated from faith in God, uh, effectively divorcing reason and faith. Descartes' most famous maxim, I think, therefore I am, centered the foundation for knowledge in self rather than in divine revelation. And it began a shift in what constitutes the final authority for understanding the world from faith in God's divine revelation to human reason. So, whereas Augustine had said, believe so that you may understand, Descartes made understanding first and primary. John Locke, on the other hand, valued empirical perception through the senses and said that's what's necessary to human understanding, but still it's all rooted in the self. It's rooted in scientific method and observation and testing. Reason alone, because of these developments, became the basis for truth and morality. 
And this elevation of reason and science over faith, which is sometimes called the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, was, in, in the words of Abraham Kuyper, the expulsion of God from practical and theoretical life. The position that the church had enjoyed as the dominant influence over all of culture in the West was essentially over. Reason was now in control. And really, for the first time, a purely secular culture began to emerge in Western civilization, leading German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche to proclaim in 1882, God is dead. So it's important to recognize that all of these philosophical emphases have led to where we are today. And that now, post-enlightenment, we are dealing with a world in which reason and science are viewed as the most important values far above faith and belief in the God of Scripture. Well, in a minute, I want to focus on one way, one biblical way, that God has given us to make sure that we as Christians truly are, in a proper way, set apart from the world, even as we are in the world. But first, I want to highlight a book that emphasizes this kind of distinction. And it's a classic work by theologian Augustine of Hippo. In his monumental City of God, Augustine argues that there exists a fundamental hostility between the City of God and the City of Man. He emphasizes this biblical position of antithesis. He says this, Two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. For Augustine, the city of God exists in heaven, but even now believers constitute the city of God, though currently only as strangers and pilgrims. We're not there yet. The city of man, on the other hand, in Augustine's view, consists of all unbelievers, and thus these two cities will really perpetuate into, into eternity. There's, there's, there's a clear distinction between the two. Augustine understands these cities to be two completely separate identities, distinguished by different lifestyles, different loves. But since the two cities, according to Augustine, are now, to quote him, commingled and, as it were, entangled together, believers may, in his view, participate in the city of man on political and civic levels for the sake of peace. And so both the themes of antithesis and the commonality of common humankind, find expression in this classic work by Augustine. In, in many ways, because of Augustine's emphasis both on antithesis and commonality, this book and Augustine's theological writings in general serve as a fountainhead for both the two-kingdom position and the transformationalist position. Both of these views that I talked about earlier point to Augustine as their fountainhead, which really emphasizes the significance and importance of this classic work, City of God by Augustine. So how can we then, as Christians, make sure that as we are living in the world, as we are during the week operating in our vocations and working for the good of, of, of mankind— how can we make sure that we still are truly set apart to the Lord? Well, what God has given us biblically to do this is a regular weekly rhythm of celebrating the Lord's Day. We as Christians should set apart every day to the Lord as a sacrifice of worship. But the first day of the week has been specifically distinguished from the other six days by God himself. 
This special day was, was prophesied in the Old Testament. In Psalm 118, the psalmist writes, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, we often use this passage to teach that we should rejoice in every day that God has made, and that's certainly true. But more correctly, this passage speaks of a specific day in which we should specially rejoice. And this special day that the Lord has made is is the one on which the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Peter explicitly tells us what this special day is in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Peter indicates there that the special day prophesied in Psalm 118 is the day on which Jesus the Messiah raised from the dead, which of course is the first day of the week. This day of Christ's victory over sin and death is the one in which Christians should rejoice in a special way, different from the other six days of the week. And this special set-apart day is specifically designated as the Lord's Day. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That expression, Lord's day, is not the same as other expressions in the book of Revelation that are sometimes rendered the day of the Lord. This is a different construction. This term translated Lord's in Revelation chapter 1 is not the same term as in those other references. This is a unique term of possession indicating that because of Christ's resurrection, the first day of the week is a special day belonging to the Lord. This is the same possessive term, for instance, that is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, with reference to the Lord's Supper. It is a supper belonging to the Lord in a special way. It's a supper set apart from other common suppers because it symbolizes the death of Christ. And similarly, the first day of the week is set apart from other common days because it is the day on which Christ arose. We find examples in the New Testament of churches gathering together on the first day of the week in this way. Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. These are days set apart for the Lord. Now, while it is true that the expression Lord's Day is is used only once in the New Testament and it's not explicitly connected there to the first day of the week, Testimony of early church leaders, including some friends of the Apostle John himself, confirm that the first day was indeed called the Lord's Day. For example, an early 2nd century letter from Ignatius, one of the first pastors of the church in Antioch, helps us solidify that the first day of the week became for Christians their primary day of worship and that they referred to it as the Lord's Day. He specifically says the Lord's Day is that first day of the week. And because Ignatius was a disciple of Polycarp, who was himself a disciple of John, this gives us a good indication that what John meant by the Lord's Day is indeed the first day of the week. It's clear that we as Christians should set apart this day for the Lord. And this is one of the ways that God has given us to make sure that even though we are living in the world and even though we are responsible to do good for our fellow man and the vocations in which God has called us, we should be set apart unto the Lord. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating that helps us to spread the word. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity 
in a post-Christian culture.